0: Welcome, listeners, to another edition of the Think Home Care podcast. I'm your host, Pat Kelleher, and I'm the Executive Director of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. Today, we're talking employment law and the ever-changing landscape for home care in this complex area. My guest today is Angelo Spinola of the Littler Mendelssohn Law Firm, where he's co-chair of the Home Health and Home Care Industry Group. Full disclosure, the Home Care of Massachusetts has a preferred vendor agreement with Littler, relative to their home care toolkit, and we'll touch on that briefly at the end of this discussion. So welcome, Angelo.
1: Thanks for having me, Pat, I appreciate it.
0: This area, Angelo, of employment law and compliance as it relates to home care is so broad and can have so many consequences for an organization, it's really hard to know where to start. So maybe let's start with the pandemic, which we're grappling right now, and sort of work backwards. I heard just last month from one of our member agencies That said, that she has had to develop 30 new policies and procedures since the start of the pandemic for her organization. Now, not all were HR related, some were clinical, but many of them were related to human resources. So let's start, you know, can you speak generally to some of the new policies that your firm is recommending that agencies must now have that they may not have had pre-COVID?
1: Sure. Yeah, I I think that sounds about right. Uh, 30 policies. uh, We have really seen uh, an unprecedented amount of new law, not only at a state level, but really at a federal level with all the stimulus packages and the uh, Family First Coronavirus Response Act and and, all the CARES. And, you know, it's, it's really a lot to keep up with. Yeah, what I would tell you, there's a so many different uh policies and options you know what what we saw was by and large not only home care but um you know assisted living and some of some of the other healthcare related facilities were just not ready for dealing with a pandemic and we've talked about it but we've really never been been hit at this level so While there might have been some policies, you know, having a very strong communicable disease policy, you know, I think now most agencies have that, whereas maybe that wasn't a focus before. We're seeing lots of of screening tools and policies, both at a a caregiver and a client level to make sure that people who are working and and interacting with this vulnerable sector of, of, of our population are healthy. Um, you, we're seeing that from both a, a uh, software perspective with the time and attendance materials and then even even just, uh, you know, paperwork in some cases for those who, who, who maybe are not uh, all electronic. Um, lots of, of client notices, sometimes waivers, waiver programs with respect to claims. You know, we know that that's a, a major Focus on this next stimulus package is, is trying to create some qualified immunity against some of the COVID-related lawsuits, but a lot of companies have taken uh, efforts, uh, taking these matters in their own hands and and, and created waiver-type programs for lawsuits, safety and, and health, emergency preparedness plans, visitor programs, telework programs for those those office staff that are now working from home. And, you know, it's almost like a live-in kind of program. When are you? When are you working and when are you uh off duty in your own home? A little more challenging, return to work protocols, PPE, um, and training programs around PPE. So there's there's really a lot. OSHA materials. Um, some uh have testing protocols for COVID testing and uh contact tracing scripts and and the like, certainly the FFCRA materials and policies. Um, and it can feel very overwhelming, I think, for the the uh, average provider um, one thing to to be aware of I think you all have access to this. the industry created a recommended operational protocol specifically for home care to sort of help navigate through what the steps are and we 've done lots of checklists and and guidance to really help sort of with that overall picture of of what should be done to respond to the pandemic, to try to straighten some of of that morass out since it is such a, an overwhelming lift for, for agencies.
0: Yeah. Let's dig down into just a couple of those. You you named so many, it's, it's just almost impossible for an agency to keep up. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the policies and procedures in the manual that Lit -Lit created in a little bit. Um, You mentioned the Families First Cares Act. It's such a complicated law. It has such wide-ranging implications for home care. And the interpretations seem to have changed over time. Do you sense that the agencies that you work with now have got their hands around that, how they're um, uh, um, um, labeling their workforce, how they're treating them with regard to family leave? Um, Because I know there was a lot of confusion in the spring around this.
1: Yeah, if if I had to... To guess, I would say that most of the agencies do not have their arms fully around this. I think it's it's just like you said. There's been so much back and forth on what is a healthcare provider and and am I covered and you know and and the chances are it's going to change some more as we go. And I think that some agencies have kind of thrown their hands up uh, because they don't understand what the what the current status is. And, and let me just sort of break that down in in a fundamental level, what effectively happened was the Department of Labor created a very, very broad exemption for this industry um, and others that probably meant that the FFCRA did not apply to most home care and home health agencies. That then changed when the DOL was challenged by the state of New York uh, on on exceeding authority by creating such a broad definition. And now we have a more narrow definition that applies to some, but not all agencies and some employees within the agency. So let's just kind of break it down as to where the status is now and where maybe we're headed. So if you have fewer than 500 employees, the FFCRA absolutely applies to you in some way. You will have to provide coverage to those who would qualify for the coverage in some way. That may just be your office staff, um, but there's no full healthcare provider exemption anymore. At, at best, the healthcare provider exemption, meaning you wouldn't have to provide the coverage, only would apply to the the direct care workforce, right? those who are, are dealing with with caregivers. And so that's an important thing to understand is if you haven't wrestled down what your obligations are under the FFCRA, you need to do that. You should do that. And there is some risk and we anticipate that we're going to see some lawsuits um, related to that. I think an arbitration agreement is really important in this regard because an individual FFCRA claim is not uh, is not overwhelming. It's it's if it's a class type of, of case where you, you might have issues. And I think it's also possible that the FFCRA, given the the state of the pandemic now, that it gets extended um, mm-hmm. in one of these additional stimulus packages. So we have to kind of keep an eye on on what happens. And some of these exemptions may change again. If they change, they're going to change where there's fewer exemptions, maybe there's not a 500-employee cap anymore. Maybe there's not a health care provider exemption at all anymore, but I do think it's really important for agencies to do their best to keep up with what is happening so that they can make sure that they're compliant.
0: Now, it was my understanding at the beginning, um, Angelo, that some agencies whose direct care workers were classified as exempt, at least in our state, chose not to use that exemption and to offer the family first. Cares Act benefits that was allowed correct
1: yeah that's right and and you, it was also and still is allowed to offer partial benefits so for example you may say the paid sick benefit we're, we're going to provide that if somebody um, you know has been exposed mm-hmm. and we're going to make sure that we pay for the the two weeks of, of paid sick leave but the the issue that was creating so much havoc and and still is to some extent within the industry is caring for a, a child, right? The, the caregiver provision. So I'm perfectly healthy as your caregiver, um, but my child is out of school because of, of a COVID shutdown. And so I can't come to work because I'm I'm watching my child. And the concept is, well, let's figure out another way to make sure you have the childcare that you need, but we really need you and your skill out on the front line protecting our seniors. So we have seen kind of a, a mix and match and everyone should remember that if you are providing FFCRA benefits, that is paid for by the government, not you. Not everybody understands that. You you get a tax credit, a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credit for every dollar that is paid out. There is a process that you must follow to make sure that you you are qualifying and we can establish that it's FFCRA uh, leave and not some other type of leave, like Massachusetts paid sick sick mm-hmm. leave, um, but you can get a dollar-for-dollar dollar credit for providing um, those benefits.
0: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because I had sort of forgotten about that in the early days when we did education around this. Um, and I think there's a huge balancing act and there's a lot of implications for it. I th- when we first saw the FFCRA pass um, in the early days of the pandemic, we had done some surveys. Now they're more anecdotal than, um, you know, true, uh, you know, statistically significant, but some of our member agencies. Um, in April and May and June, had up to 30% of the workforce out in some capacity. And ma- the majority of it, as you said, was childcare. And people have really been scrambling to, you know, to find ways to provide that benefit. I think it was m- more childcare than it was COVID exposure or sick time. Wow. Um, so you mentioned the um, idea of the, um, you know, paid sick time. Vis-a-vis Families First Care Act and agencies having to decide um, if they're going to pay that benefit, and what their policies are. There's a whole minefield, I think, related to potential COVID exposure and return to work um, in Massachusetts. If you choose to travel across state lines, and I'm sure this is now the same in many states, um, you're required to produce a test of negative um COVID or quarantine for 14 days, are agencies having to, beyond sort of deciding on about offering families first paid benefits, are agencies having to develop policies around potential COVID exposure, um, or is it clear from the CDC what an agency should be doing, or do they need to have their own policies related to if someone voluntarily chooses to go to New Hampshire to see a relative or shop? Um, and discloses that and now has to quarantine. Do agencies need policies around that?
1: Yeah, I would definitely recommend having your own policies. And this is an area that's just fraught with, as you can imagine, legal issues. Um, This is something we've been dealing uh, a lot with because how far can you go as an agency to regulate somebody's off-duty conduct to protect your own clientele. I, I was uh, working with a, a woman in, in Connecticut and uh, she was, you know, had a lot of comorbidities, very, very high risk. Um, and, you know, she has a direct uh, group of caregivers that care for her. And there was one she was really concerned about that the caregiver wasn't going out of town, but the caregivers is, is going out in the public, a uh, younger caregiver and, you know, really struggled with yeah, you know, what to do with this caregiver and how much you know that that off-duty conduct could be regulated. So it is a a very very challenging issue, particularly in a state like like this where you end up in a in a quarantine situation, right? And and we're talking about exempt employees. Do we have to pay them for that? Non-exempt employees, you know, can we can, do we have to give them the leave? Um, so it is a it is a challenging issue and and one that you certain certainly. Um, should have policies and procedures around.
0: Right, right. I mean, the real question was, you know, for some agencies say if you if your behavior is voluntary, that you'd cross state lines. Um, we will not take you back to work, but we really don't feel an obligation to pay. But again, you said that has to be really written out clearly between exempt, non-exempt employees and, and um, behavior choices that people make.
1: Certainly and the, and the local state laws, right? And what would they be entitled to? So could you voluntarily uh, make a decision that now all of a sudden entitles you to leave? It's, it's a little bit similar to you know, the, the issues that we were dealing with. You know, your, your survey is pretty fascinating and that's not um, I think that's uh, what I would have anticipated given all the, the number of, of uh, single mothers that, that do this kind of work. Um, but with the FFCRA, where we started running into a problem for the companies that were utilizing the healthcare provider exemption was when the unemployment rate got so high that it was mm-hmm. actually more, more beneficial for a caregiver not to work and collect unemployment than to work. And lots of caregivers were drawing unemployment when there was work available, utilizing the same argument that, hey, we, we, we can't come to work because uh, our, our children are out of school. Um, and it created this strange sort of disincentive to work, um, which yeah, was a nightmare for this industry.
0: Yeah, and, and and that's still playing out a little bit as you know schools systems across Massachusetts, and I'm sure across the um, you know the Northeast, um, it's almost town by town whether the schools are open. Some schools are open for. Um, special needs students only, some are totally. So um, it's an issue that hasn't gone away, although the enhanced unemployment has gone away, the issue of families struggling with this. Um, and as you said, um, single parents uh, with no other caregivers at home, uh, we, we just not have not come up with the solution. And I, you know, the state tried to open some daycares just for healthcare workers, but I really don't think um, they were convenient for home health. And of course we work odd hours and they're pu- daycares were only open nine to five. Um, before we move off COVID and talk a little bit about some of the other HR challenges, um, I just want to mention, of course, everybody is talking about, um, the vaccine and where home health will be in the queue to access the vaccine and what type of policies they need to be thinking about. And I'm sure, um, Littler is just beginning to, you know, unravel that, that, unpeel that onion. Um, is there anything you want to say or this people should start thinking about as they hope we think, at least in Massachusetts. And I've seen a lot of the other States um, through the council state associations has surveyed. And it seems in a lot of States home health um, is in sort of the lower part of tier one or phase one in Massachusetts. Home health is just behind hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, and then emergency responders like police and fire and then home health. So we're anticipating if supply um, is able to keep up with it, that we could be in the queue, I hope, by late January. So what should we be thinking about?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because this, I think, in the last two weeks has been the most common question that I've gotten. I've probably gotten this question from from 30 or 40 of, of our home care clients. And the the general question that people are asking so much so that, We're going to end up doing a a client alert on this. I'll I'll try to send that out next week. Um, Can we mandate the vaccine? Can we require our workforce to take the vaccine? And it's a very interesting question. Um, I'll talk about that. I think you're right as far as where we sit. And we've been doing a lot of work with um, the the associations and the, the, the federal home care associations. And I do believe that um, in general, uh, home care workers will fall right within the tier that you just mentioned, a tier one, right after the hospitals and and where you have the most vulnerable population. I think we're next, which is a really great sign, by the way. Generally, um, one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been the seat at the table that home care now has um, and the recognition of how important what Home care providers do uh, how important it is, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And you see it in all of the the stimulus bills, even the ones that that didn't didn't pass, like heroes and heels, where there's a real focus on home care, and home care is spoken of in the same vein as as a acute care or healthcare provider. And I, I think that's a that's a long time coming. And the industry has also pulled together in, in such a, a great way. Um, around this. And I think we're speaking, despite this being a very fractured industry, um, speaking more than ever before with one voice, which is great. So on the on the vaccine and, and sort of the question, assuming that it will be widely available at the beginning of the year here, at least first quarter for certain, um, uh, can we require uh, our employees to be vaccinated? And I think where That's shaping up and there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole legal analysis around that, which is what I will, I'll be publishing. Um, But the the bottom line is, it seems to me that the position that is shaping around the industry is let's, let's wait and see. It's a little too early to make that call. It's going to be most likely similar to what the rules are around mandating the flu shot. Um, Mm -hmm. And does the state require it? Does the federal government require it? There's too many, from my perspective, too many unknowns to come out of the gate saying that you you are going to require employees to do it. There's there's discrimination type issues, accommodation issues around religion and safety. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of issues that have previously existed, and we've already seen a case in California where a um, a hospital system or a school system actually. Mandated the flu shot because of COVID, and uh, somebody brought a lawsuit against all of those school systems. And I, I would anticipate that we're going to see that same sort of thing if somebody, if one of these companies or or as a industry, we require it um, without any accommodation. So I think we just need to be careful and see how things shape up in this front and what the government is saying about it, what other companies are doing before we have to make that call and I don't think we need to make that call just yet because we don't have the vaccine yet but it's a good discussion to start to have.
0: Yeah, and and I think your point about home care sort of suddenly being, you know, at the table and recognized. I mean, I think in Massachusetts and in many states, you know, it's not written, but suddenly home first is becoming, you know, a a a sort of rallying cry for a lot of hospital discharge mm-hmm. planners to say because of the problems our, you know, our sister long-term care um, partners and SNFs had with the, the spread of the virus, um, client, patients don't want to go there, and families don't want them to go there. Um, I did say we're going to wrap up on COVID, but I'll, I'll say one of the places we've had trouble getting a seat at the table is getting access to testing kits. And again, we recognize that testing kits are limited, and the and the pandemic spread in nursing homes and uh, problems in hospitals have. Put most of the kits that HHS distributed um, into uh, those sectors, and we've been scrambling a little bit. Um, have you seen agencies who've had to have policies around staff testing? Um, and those issues can also be complicated. Do should agencies be paying if they require it? Mm-hmm. Um, can they bill your insurance? Can they ask you to pay for your own test? Have you grappled with that at all, Angelo?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And we've, we've uh, had, you know, created several different kinds of testing protocols. And you, you just touched on, on all of the issues, right? Or, or a lot of the issues is, is, um, you know, if we're, if we're requiring testing, who pays for it? Uh, who pays for the time doing it? Who pays for the travel time? If you're mm-hmm. going to a, a testing site that's outside of, uh, your, your normal commute or in the middle of the day, the waiting time. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of state-specific issues uh, related to that. Um, so I think you you touched on it well, and and I think the other um, piece of testing that we've dealt with a lot is a lot of agencies are conducting testing as well, right? They're mm-hmm. utilizing their workforce to conduct testing on behalf of another organization, right, that hires them to do that. And that creates its own set of protocols and responsibilities that agencies have. So, yeah, we are seeing a, a lot around testing and and also which tests and which tests are, are you know, the rapid test versus mm-hmm. the test that takes some time to, to get results back and the test that can be taken at home that's coming out now. And, you know, what, what is an adequate test for purposes of, of um, uh, testing your workforce and your workforce testing others.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that wait time because as Thanksgiving approached and now we're in that time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, even though our state has set up what seems like a large number of what they call stop the spread sites where you can go and be tested, whether you're asymptomatic or symptomatic, um, the wait times have increased exponentially and our agencies report having to get in line and, and wait three and four plus hours. And I hadn't really thought about um, the obligation of the employer to pay for that time in the line. And of course um, that can get very expensive very quickly.
1: Yeah. Not, not to mention the cost of the test itself.
0: Exactly. Well, the state size in Massachusetts stop the spread are free. Um, but if you want to jump the line and go to a, a minute clinic or one types of those places, someone has to pay either your insurer mm-hmm. or your, yourself or your employer um, and they want the money up front. Even if you're going to build the insurer, you have to pay and then try to chase down the reimbursements. Very complicated. Um, Well, let's move into a couple of other areas before we talk about the LITLA toolkit and and, and what uh, together we are offering the membership of the home care lines. Just a couple of things. I've seen some presentations from your law firm on hiring and onboarding in HR um and it seems again um this is a very fluid area lots of people doing hiring and onboarding totally remotely are there certain hr policies that are sort of emerging in this area that some of our listeners may not be thinking that they need to have in terms of bringing on a new employee and what they may need to sign or um disclose to them or have them be aware of
1: yeah it's a good question and yes there are and and i think where a lot of agencies may have misses is either not enough, not enough policy. Unfortunately, we're in a world where you, you've got to have it documented. And, and the reason for that is uh, it's the way that the burden shifting works in pay practice kind of claims, the most common claims, the legal claims that we see. If the employer doesn't have adequate records, time records, policies, instructions, those sorts of things that tell the employee what to do, you're more likely to lose unemployment claims. You're, you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to defend a wage hour claim, right? There's, there's uh, you know, you, You're going to be more uh, susceptible to a discrimination claim. We think about employment at will. Employment at will is a little bit of a misnomer because there are so many protected categories now that you can't terminate somebody for. And if you don't have a good, adequate record of of performance violations and you're saying that it's a performance related termination, you're creating kind of a, a hole and opportunity for that employee to say, no, not performance. It was pregnancy. It was sex. It was race. It was whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. And, and you, you have this lack of record keeping. And and what sometimes happens is there are lots of sort of generic policies out there that are for any industry in any state. And they just don't say much, you know, Um, And what you really need and what we really emphasize is having policies that are specific to your state and your business. So for home care, a travel policy in Massachusetts, there's an obligation to pay for travel related expenses. So you have to have a travel and mileage uh, policy. Right. We've got to deal with the travel time and the mileage. We are in a scenario where our workforce is working from home and leaving from home. So there's these continuous workday theories that are very, very common within the industry. I've had several travel cases in Massachusetts, right, alleging these sorts of things. And the the concept is, hey, I'm working from home and I start my workday in my home by reviewing care notes or contacting the client to make sure that they're available for the appointment that we've scheduled, whatever the case may be. And now that I've started working, that means that my travel time, even that first travel time that's supposed to be non-compensable, is now compensable under the continuous workday theory. That's the argument that's being made. That gets really, really expensive when you think about um, that on behalf of all employees and the travel, whatever that is, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, every single day added to their time. And those sorts of things can be addressed Buy a policy, and you just follow the policy and you, the right policy, and you can eliminate that claim. Um, so it, it's it's things like that. Travel policy, off the work, uh, off the clock work policy, right? That clearly defines what work is within this industry. What is work? Because uh, I'm a litigator, right? I litigate cases, and I depose caregivers and nurses all the time. And what they always argue when they say that you owe me more time than you paid me is, well, I didn't report that because nobody told me that was working time. I didn't know if I was looking at care notes at home or charting that that would be considered work time. So we've got to describe what all this is. We've got to set up a process for somebody to report unpaid working time, those sorts of things, so that once we have the policies and procedures in place, if the employee doesn't follow those policies and procedures, now the burden is on them. We've basically shifted that monkey off of our back to the employee, and the employee has the burden now to follow the policies and procedures. But if you don't have the policies and procedures, there's no way to to start to create that shift.
0: Very good, good advice. This is probably a good jumping off point to talk a little bit about. Um, the the toolkit um, that your law firm uh, has put together and that, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the Home Care Alliance has a preferred vendor program with Littler on this to provide access to it to our member agencies at a slightly discounted rate um, through a group purchasing program. So when you first developed this toolkit for home care, was it with a certain type of agency in mind? We represent both certified and um non-certified or non-skilled agencies? Was it with smaller agencies in mind, with limited HR staff, or is it, would you say it was is universally useful um, across the, the various types of uh, agencies we have in home care and home health?
1: Yeah, a great question. And the the toolkit really has evolved over time and is actually in process of another facelift where it's going to have even more uh more materials. And the concept of the toolkit was really given the number of agencies that are out there to create kind of a shared services subscription model so that we can create the best programs, the best policies that are very specific at a much lower cost than if we were working with each agency one-on-one. It really evolved after we litigated the the live-in and companionship exemption cases. And all of these caregivers went from exempt to non-exempt under federal law. Uh, and agencies were kind of left trying to figure out what to do. And now, you know, there's a ton of ton of material on on the the toolkit, and it really is for everyone in the industry. So there's materials there for for home health, for certified, non-certified, for private duty. Um, I would say that the traditional use model is the smaller agency that may not have a a, a staff or a suite of materials. Um, that you know, is is focused on compliance to give them a real leg up on on developing compliance. And there's lots of different you know subscription offerings for all of the things that that we talk about the COVID materials, the you know uh, state specific materials. So it's a it's a really robust tool. And like I said, we're we're uh, even even adding more from a, a policy manual perspective and some other other things that our clients are telling us would be valuable to introduce to the toolkit. So um, it's a, it's been a very, very popular program and I think uh, everyone in this business can use it.
0: Yeah. I mentioned at the top of the podcast about a small uh, private agency that was struggling to develop um, these 30 policies and procedures that didn't exist prior to early March. And I think something like this probably would have saved um, that agency owner a lot of time and um, headache. So, can purchasers of the toolkit expect that they'll get state specific guidance, or is it geared primarily to making sure we're compliant with what the federal regulatory um, requirements are in home care and home health care?
1: Yeah, it, it really is both. So, we have um, state manuals that describe what the law is in a particular state. So, you know, things like what I mentioned with with mileage, you know, the unique live-in rules in, in Massachusetts, you know, those, those types of things are covered. Do you have to pay for meal periods? We talk about the paid FMLA uh, law that will, will uh, go on the books next month there. Um, so it's got all of that. There's really challenging non-compete laws uh, for non-exempt employees in Massachusetts. So you've got a lot of information at a state level and also federal because we, you have to comply with federal and state law. And if the federal law is is more um, beneficial to employees than state law, then it's the federal law that would apply. So for example, the the FFCRA, you would still have to comply with that, even though that's a federal law, um, but also the the state paid FMLA requirements that start in January, you will have to comply with that as well. And when you think about the, the domestic worker uh bill of rights in Massachusetts, right? We've got to comply with that and have an employment agreement in place for live-ins and those sorts of things and that's the point about what the toolkit is really designed around is the industry. So the things that are unique to the industry like the domestic worker bill of rights and live-in and all of that, you're not going to find those materials anywhere else at least that comprehensive. And then there are additional add-ons to the toolkit. So what we're working on right now our templated materials basically, um, start to finish right from higher determination of everything that an agency might need from all of those agreements and policy manuals and handbooks and, and the like, uh, that can be made available. And that will even be in an, in an a la carte, um, manner they will be available for some that maybe have some things and not all. So we're trying to really come up with, with every option. And I think the, um, The most beneficial thing going back to like, let's say, the um, the covid response package that we have, that's probably got about 40 documents in it. And all of those are updated as when the CDC changes their requirements uh, for screening, um, you know, we update our materials. And I think that's the real struggle, particularly in places like Massachusetts, where the law changes a lot Uh, and you might have a great handbook. For one year, but what happens the next year and and, um, the the idea is to put these things on a schedule um, through a subscription and they they continue to update as the law updates and changes.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned two areas that we could spend a lot of time on and maybe we will at a future podcast. I mean, the whole idea of meal, rest time, and overtime Mm -hmm. uh, for live-in workers, uh, we can't do enough education on that for the industry. And knowing that you can have a policy in place that has been vetted against both federal and state laws, I think is is, um, invaluable to a lot of our member agencies. Um, Likewise, I think, you know, bringing on a new um, benefit like the Paid Family Medical Leave Act in Massachusetts, you know, while we applaud our state for being so forward-thinking, you know, agencies, you know, are in the midst of just a state of emergency, literally, um, and and having to find time to think about that and the implications for that on a workforce that is already struggling to meet demand, I think is going to be very challenging um, for us. Uh, for listeners who are members of the Home Care Alliance... Um, you can find a link to the Littler-Mendelson toolkit on the group purchase page of our website, thinkhomecare.org. Um, and before Angelo signs off, I'll have him um, give him information about his law firm for people who may um, not be members of the Home Care Alliance or listening um, for this out of state. I do think, um, having looked at it, um, it's almost like adding a 0.5 or even higher FTE to your HR department. I mean, mm-hmm. truly, um, for what is um, a small investment compared to hiring someone to do this, um, you are actually adding a staff person to your to your team. Um, and I think the fact that Litla developed this and keeps it up to date is a great service to the industry. Um, so today, my guest. Oh, go ahead, Angel. Did you want to add to that?
1: I was just going to say that's a that's a really cool way of saying it. I have never really thought about it that way, but that is exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to create. A process to make it as easy as possible for an agency that otherwise would never be able to afford this stuff and and by the way the the end result of this uh, kind of give you an example we want everyone not only in Massachusetts but all home care agencies to start using this stuff because what happens is you know we have for example, an arbitration agreement in there, and we can use that arbitration agreement even if it hasn't been for a particular brand, right? Um, and say to a plaintiff's lawyer uh, or to an arbitrator or a court, look, we've enforced the language in this arbitration agreement dozens and dozens of times all over the country. There's no there's no case in controversy here about whether it's enforceable. Um, and that's what we want to do with live in and with, you know, we're working with the departments of, of labor and with all of these materials so that, the regulators will start to leave us alone a little bit and start to sort of see a pattern of compliance. Um, and that has been a challenge historically for our industry because of the number of mom and pop providers that don't necessarily have the legal budget to, to really focus on this. So we will continue to, to make this easier and easier. We're going to have some doc automation next year uh, to make it easier to actually fill out the forms um so that you all can focus on your operations that that's the goal
0: yeah i think the idea of creating a a a, a pattern of compliance in our industry um is great language because i think um we represent about uh 65 non-certified private care members but we think in massachusetts um there are upwards of 200 plus of those agencies and they just don't know what they don't know and um sometimes they're Failure to comply creates a black eye for the industry, um, and it's unfortunate um, because these laws are complicated, and they open shop, and they don't know what they don't know, and they get themselves in trouble. Um, so today, you've been listening to um, my guest, Angelo Spinola of the law firm littler Mendelson. At littler Mendelson, Angelo frequently, as you heard, represents employers all across the country in collective class hybrid action suits brought under the Fair Labor Standards Act. He counsels employers responding to investigations relative to state and federal wage and hour laws. He litigates in many areas, including discrimination and breach of employment contract claims, and a a lot more than that. So, Angela, where can people find you if they need legal assistance in this area, or how can they access the toolkit if they're not members of the Home Care Alliance and not going onto our thinkhomecare.org website?
1: You can find a link to the, the toolkit on our website, which is www.littler.com, L I T T L E R.com. I am at Spinola at littler.com, A S P I N O L A at littler.com. Uh, and I'd be happy to uh, talk with anyone that needs any assistance. We, we do it all in this industry. This is my focus. I uh, love the industry. I love what you all do. And I appreciate it. I really do think it's God's work. And both my parents needed it uh, in their lifetimes. And uh, you know, I would just uh, encourage everyone um, to continue to fight for our seniors, our disabled, you're doing an awesome job.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that, Angela. It's been delightful talking to you. A lot of good information. Um, I hope you enjoy the holiday season such that it will be, um, and maybe in the new year we'll talk again. So thank you for listening to Think Home Care. I'm Pat Kelleher. Happy holidays.
1: Thank you, Pat. Talking Home Care is a production of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about our association, visit us at www.thinkhomecare.org.
0: Thank you.